Today's sermon comes from Acts 19, 23 through 41. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made of the hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into dispute, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out in one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper to the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious or blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Last summer, a woman from Omsk, Russia, reportedly sued McDonald's over an advertisement that was advertising cheeseburgers and chicken nuggets. She did this because she said it caused her to break her fast during Lent. She was an Orthodox Christian, and she was giving up meat and animal products during this six-week period leading up to Easter. She said, when I saw an advertising banner, I could not help myself. I visited McDonald's and bought a cheeseburger. Her official complaint, for those of you that are lawyers, you'll appreciate this. Her official complaint was this. In the action of McDonald's, I see a violation of the consumer protection law. I asked the court to investigate, and if a violation has taken place, to oblige McDonald's to compensate me for moral damage, in the amount of 1,000 rubles, 
which at the time was equivalent to about 14 US dollars. Now, we laugh at that. But you and I are bombarded with news, with podcasts, with advertisements every day, in every moment of every day. And that news that we are constantly receiving reveals something about us and it reveals something in us. Whether it be unhappiness, whether it be anger, fatigue, discontentment, the gospel is news. It's the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The question becomes, when you're confronted with the gospel, what does it reveal? What does the gospel reveal? First, it reveals what you're living for. It reveals what you are living for. We see this as the gospel confronted this man named Demetrius in Ephesus. Verses 24 to 25. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Now, who was Artemis? Artemis was the great goddess of the Ephesians. Her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It had 127 pillars, each pillar 60 feet high. The political, the economic, the, the social well-being of the city of Ephesus revolved around the worship of this goddess, the worship of Artemis. The manufacturing of these shrines of Artemis in Ephesus was big business. It was very much part of the city's economy. It's how these silversmiths and craftsmen made a lot of money. It was, it was absolutely tied up to everyone's livelihood. Now, the question is, why were so many of these shrines of Artemis being made? It wasn't because they were purchased as souvenirs, right? That would just be they buy one, stick it on their shelf, and they're done with it. No, these shrines were bought regularly as offerings that were brought into the temple when they worshiped Artemis. You could think of it as your, your tithe that you bring or you give. They did this regularly with these shrines, and so they were being mass-produced and produced all the time right, to feed this business. In other words, the silversmiths, like Demetrius, were getting rich off the worship of this false god. No different today, to use an extreme example, than uh, drug dealers or human traffickers getting rich off our culture's worship of the God of pleasure. That's what was going on in Ephesus. Now, why was Demetrius and these other craftsmen so threatened by the gospel when it was proclaimed? A gospel that was 
uh, calling people to turn from false gods and turn to Jesus Christ, the living God. Verse 27, and there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. As people were turning to Jesus Christ, they quit buying these shrines, and they quit visiting the, the temple of Artemis. And so business was down. Sales year to year were down. Income was down. They were losing money, and that explains verse 28 that says they were upset and enraged. They were enraged. You say, well, there it is then. When the gospel confronted Demetrius and these silversmiths, it revealed that they were living for wealth. And the answer is no. They weren't living for money and wealth. Look at verse 27 again. It says the danger was that their trade would come into disrepute, which means shame or reproach. If this great goddess Artemis came to be nothing and her magnificence was stripped, then their very vocation would be a sham. It would be shameful, it'd be dishonorable. You see, the, the social status of these silversmiths and of these craftsmen in Ephesus was tenuous. They had a lack of education and they worked with their hands, which means that the elite of society looked down upon them. But they made a lot of money. And it was their making of a lot of money that gave them status in the city. So if their income was threatened, their status was threatened. They weren't living for wealth. They were living for the status that wealth delivered. The same is true today. No one lives for money or wealth. Nobody lives for wealth. Nobody lives for money. Everyone lives for what money or wealth can deliver. Money and wealth is just a gateway to what you really live for. Why do you get so angry and upset when your money is threatened? It's, be, it's because what you believe will make you happy is threatened. Why in the Gospels does Jesus spend so much time talking about money? Because money is the gateway into the heart of what you are really living for. If you were to take all of the whys or the reasons why we want more money and more wealth, and you were to kind of distill them down, all those reasons would fall into one of four categories. The reason that we want more money and wealth, which reveals what we're really living for, is one of four categories. It's either for pleasure and comfort or for status 
and affirmation, or it's for power and control, or it's for security. One of the critical questions that you have to ask yourself is what does money and wealth deliver to me? Does it deliver pleasure and comfort? Or does it deliver status and affirmation? Or does it deliver power and control over my life? Or does it deliver security? When the gospel of Jesus Christ confronts you, it confronts what you're living for. But it doesn't only confront what you're living for, it confronts why it's so easy to live for those things. Why it's so easy to live for those things. When the false goddess Artemis is threatened in Ephesus, by the gospel being proclaimed. It's interesting to note how she's defended. How the worship of this false God is justified. And what you see here is this God is justified in two ways. The first is an appeal to numbers. It's an appeal to numbers. Look at the end of verse 27. She, speaking of Artemis, whom all Asia in the world worship. I mean, the entire world is worshiping Artemis. How can it be wrong? Everyone is worshiping Artemis. How can it be wrong? Why would you turn away from that? Or again, in verse 35, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Now, what, what is, what's that mean? Well, this is a direct attack on Paul in verse 26 when he says, gods made with hands are not gods. In the ancient world, meteorites were oftentimes treated as objects of cult worship. So Artemis was not a god made by hands. Artemis was a god that fell from the heavens. So you put that all together in verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied. Everybody's worshiping this god. It can't be denied. So how can it be wrong? How can it be wrong? Why would you turn away from something that everyone's doing and that cannot be denied? This same justification of false worship is leveraged today. Everyone's doing it. This is the danger of communal or cultural worship of a false god. It can become where everyone is doing it. And if everyone's doing it and it is the norm, then how can it really be wrong? There's a great picture of this in God's creation. It's called the ant death spiral. Uh, and, it, and it's a phenomenon that is observed among army ants. Army ants never make a permanent nest. Uh, and so their lives are always uh, on the move. They never stop. They're also blind, which means that they, uh, they use their smell to navigate, specifically the, the pheromone scent. The death spiral happens when a group of army ants separates from the main foraging party. They lose the pheromone scent, 
And they begin this continuous rotation where they just walk in circles, one following the other, and they do this until many die of exhaustion. Now, if that's not a vivid picture of what it looks like to lose sight of Jesus, to follow the crowd, and to live for pleasure or status or control or security. And if you've ever experienced that, and maybe that's right now, it is absolutely exhausting. So this false worship is justified by the appeal to numbers, but that's not it. There's a second way in which this worship of false gods is justified, and that is in an appeal to emotions. If you look at Demetrius's speech here in Acts 19, it is absolutely centered on emotion. Uh, he appeals to the fear of his fellow craftsmen. He, he plays upon their fears to say, you're going to lose your business. You're going to lose your profitability. You're going to lose your income. You're going to lose your livelihood. And, and it works. Because as he plays on their fears, they are stirred up into an emotional frenzy. Verse 28, when they heard this, right, this rousing speech from Demetrius, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Crying out, the word there means they were shouting, they were chanting. And it was such an emotional stir that it gathered such a crowd that they had to move to the theater in the center of the city. And this theater in Ephesus was, was a 25,000-seat amphitheater. Just to give perspective, uh, Veterans Memorial Arena downtown is about 15,000 capacity. So about double that. There's a crowd that has gathered. And as they gather and they're chanting this, some of the Jews were in the crowd wanted to dissociate themselves from Paul and what was happening. And so they get Alexander, one of, their, one of theirs, and put him up front to, you know, to get up there and defend the Jews and say, hey, we're not a part of Paul. And, and the crowd would have none of it. As Alexander got on the stage to talk and they saw he was a Jew, they just started shouting louder. In fact, verse 34, when they recognized that he, Alexander, was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. A two-hour chant. This is a worship concert. It's a worship concert. And, and Demetrius had so stirred their emotions, and then the crowd just started following each other. You know, verse 32 is striking, as Luke is describing what happened, Right? Some knew why they were there. Some were there for other reasons. And then some, it's just mob mentality. They had no idea why they were there. But hey, emotions were stirred up. There's a worship concert happening. And so they all sucked into this worship of Artemis. Same justification of false worship is leveraged 
today. If it feels good, how can it be wrong? I mean, if it feels right, how can it be wrong? How can this relationship be wrong if it feels so good and so right? Or I had a conversation with a child just recently about sin, and this child said, but it feels good. And I said, yes, it does. That's what sin is. That's why we do it. We wouldn't sin if it didn't feel good. But emotions, the appeal to emotions. If, if you watch modern advertising, either commercials on TV or video advertisements on a website, you will notice that they appeal to emotions and use repetition. And they appeal to the emotions around one of these major four categories of what you're living for. So they either appeal to your pleasure or comfort, or they appeal to your status affirmation, or they appeal to your power and control, or they appeal to your security. They're not saying great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That false god is long and gone. But they say something like this, great is the seven-figure retirement, or great is this body image, or great is this vehicle that'll make you feel more like a man or a woman, or, or great is the control you have over your life with this product. Come and worship. When the gospel confronts you, it reveals what you're really living for. It reveals why it's so easy to live for these things. But third, it reveals a new way to live. It reveals a new way to live. As the gospel encounters this city of Ephesus, it reveals three kinds of people. C.S. Lewis describes this three kind of people in a short little essay of his called The Three Kind of Men. And what he says is, there's not two kinds, but three kinds of people in the world. He says the first kind, or the first kind of person, is the one who lives purely for him or herself. Everything that they do serves selfish cares. Demetrius, in this passage, would be a picture of that. Demetrius, living purely for wealth that ultimately is just the gateway to status, all the decisions that he's making with his craftsmen are absolutely 100% about self. Right? That would be the first person that Lewis would describe. He says there's a second category, a second person, though. And this is the person that acknowledges that there is some code outside of them by which they live whether it's conscience or the Ten Commandments or just the laws of the land, civil law. In this passage, the, the town clerk would probably be closest to that, right? This town clerk quells the riot by what? Appealing to law and order, right? Verses 38, 38 to 40. There are courts, there's regular assemblies, there's way to follow the law and deal with this issue. Rioting is against Roman law, will be charged with a crime. This is an appeal to law and order. 
Lewis says this second person is always in attention, though, because they're always struggling between this external law to follow and their own natural desires. And so they toggle back and forth between these rival claims of, of self and God. He relates this tension to that of paying a tax. He says, people that fall in the second category, they will always pay their taxes faithfully, but they'll hope that there's something left over they can spend on themselves. So there's this tension. The third kind of person that he describes is the person that is operating on a completely different plane. Lewis explains, the third class is of those who can say like Paul that for them to live is Christ. These people have got rid of the tiresome business of adjusting the rival claims of self and God by the simple expedient of rejecting the claims of self altogether. The old egoistic will has been turned around, reconditioned, and made into a new thing. The will of Christ no longer limits theirs because it is theirs. All their time in belonging to him belongs also to them, for they are his. This third kind of person is probably most closely described by the Jews and the Greeks in Ephesus who burned all of their magical arts books. When they turned to Christ, they had this big bonfire of book burning. Verses 18 and 19. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and it found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, 50,000 pieces of silver, it's actually drachmas, and a drachma was a day's wage. So if we assume today that a day's wage is somewhere around $120, that's about $30,000 a year, we're talking $6 million of a bonfire of books today. Now, there were a lot of people bringing their books to this fire, but still, you break that down, this was costly for them to give up their old practices, to give up these books. And these may have been, these people, it says, that became believers. They may have been that second kind of person where they were toggling back and forth. We have to follow Jesus, but what about our old practices? What about these books? And back and forth until the Spirit got hold of them and they repented. Here's the key. You can go from person one to person two through sheer willpower. You can change from a person who lives purely for self and everything you do is serving selfish cares to a person who begins to live for some outside code, some law or some code outside yourself. In other words, you can go from being someone who doesn't follow the rules to someone who follows the rules by discipline and self-control, sheer willpower. But you cannot go from person two 
to person three by sheer willpower. That only happens through the Holy Spirit. You don't need the Holy Spirit to live an outwardly moral life. There are plenty of decent moral people in the world that are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You don't need the Holy Spirit to be different on the outside. You need the Holy Spirit to be different on the inside. You don't need the Holy Spirit to obey God's laws externally, but you do need the Holy Spirit to obey God's laws externally with joy. What's striking about these Ephesians who burned their books is the verse before in verse 17 says, they were extolling Jesus, they were praising God. They weren't begrudgingly taking these books and going, they were throwing him into the fire and worshiping and praising Jesus. Begrudging behavior modification is a product of willpower. Joyful repentance is a product of the Spirit's power. Joyful repentance. The reason you can't change from person two to person three without the, the Spirit is because growing as a disciple of Christ is not adding Jesus Christ to your life. It's collapsing into Christ as your life. It's not a matter of Jesus just kind of ticking up the scale to a higher priority above finances or whatever it may be. Jesus calls you to embrace the free fall of total abandonment to his purpose in your life. That's what Jesus calls you to, and that's why there is no way that can happen by willpower. That can only happen by the Spirit's power. While the Spirit indwells every believer, we can stifle the work of the Spirit. I love how Dane Ortland puts it in his book, Deeper. He says, closed vents cannot be cleaned. Full cups can't be filled. And the Spirit does not enter where we are quietly operating out of self-dependence. But the distraught, the empty, the pleading, the self-despairing, those tired of paying the tax of obedience to God and trying to live on what's left over. Theirs are hearts irresistible to the humble Holy Spirit. There's a powerful scene in a novel written by a South African writer named Alan Patton. And at the center of this novel is a, is a young lieutenant police lieutenant, uh, who's a husband and father. He struggles with depression. Uh, he struggles with what we would call father issues or father wounds. And he's on the verge of having an affair with a younger woman. His wife and kids go out of town and he decides he's gonna go visit his friend who's nicknamed Cappy. And his plan is to go visit his friend and to confess. 
to confess the temptation, to be transparent, to plead for help. Plead for help. And uh, as Alan Patton writes, he, he says, Peter knows what he should say when he gets to his friend's house. And he should say, Cappy, I'm here to tell you of the deep misery of my life and you must help me before I'm destroyed. You must tell me something in God's name. But when he gets there, he doesn't say any of that. He gets there and then he nonchalantly lies about why he's there. He says, oh, my house is so empty. I just need to sit with you and look at some stamps. They, they had a hobby. Both of them had a hobby of stamp collecting. And so they listened to music and they looked at stamps. And Cappy knew that he was over for some much deeper reason. And so as Peter was leaving, he said, Peter, you're welcome to my house every night while your wife and kids are gone. And he never returned. Patton writes, ah, if he could have told, and yet he could not tell. As Peter wants repentance without risk, without cost, without vulnerability. Imagine you had a dear friend who was dying of a very rare disease. And you bring your friend to a doctor. And the doctor says, you have this rare disease, you're going to die in a week. The good news is I have a remedy. But let me tell you one thing about this remedy. When you take it, it will keep you alive for the rest of your life. But you can never eat chocolate again. And you turn to your friend and you say, isn't this great? And your friend says, no chocolate? Forget it. And you say to your friend, are you crazy? If Jesus was a guru or Jesus was a great man or Jesus was a great teacher, or even if he was a, a genie in a bottle, there would be some limits of his rights over you. But if he is God, then there isn't anything that you can retain as non-negotiable in your life. Everything, any idea, any perspective, any relationship, any behavior is open to him. What are you holding on to? What are you holding on to and refusing to let go of? And how? Is this thing that you really are ultimately living for stealing the spirit-empowered joy that is yours in Christ? Let's pray. Father, your gospel brings freedom. But your gospel reveals 
It reveals what we're living for. And we confess that much of what we are living for has left us exhausted. Those secret, dark places that we retain are exhausting. Jesus, you call us to bring every sin, every behavior, every relationship, every thought, every idea underneath your lordship and to come to you in repentance and upon repenting to to find the joy of being free from what shackles us. Father, I pray for those that are holding on to something right now that are refusing to turn from something. And maybe it's because there's an appeal of numbers. Like everybody else is doing it. How can, I, how can it be wrong? Or maybe it's a deep-seated emotion of it feels so good, I can't let it go. Oh, Father, by your Spirit, would you bring a Spirit-empowered conviction and repentance And would it unleash a confession and a repentance that results in a joy that has never been experienced before? Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he died on the cross, that he became sin. He became all the false gods that we live for, that Jesus, you became that and put it to death. Would we turn to you and find in you as you rose from the dead, find new life, find resurrection? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.